Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Hey, welcome to Horizon West Church. Those who are in the room and those who are online, um, I've been uh, anxious to be with you this evening for a couple of reasons. One, I'm just uh, excited to be with you. I always am, but I told Nikki today, I said, man, there's just something about today. Maybe it was the weather. How many of you guys are, you like dig this weather, right? Somebody said, this is way too cold for me. I came to Florida to get away from this. I thought, ah, this is all right. This is good. I don't get to wear my one sweater very often. So. So I've been, I've been looking forward to this, but I've also been anxious just to um, take a, a brief minute. I think sometimes, you know, we, we come to God's house, we come to worship to, to, in part, and this is appropriate, to get away from the madness that's going on in the world. Um, but I, I do want to just take a brief moment to speak to the events that have happened in our nation this week. Um, and, and the reason I do that is because, I, I, as you saw over the course of Wednesday, um, I, I was initially... Uh, disturbed, we all were, uh, by the things that were unfolding in our nation's capital. Uh, but then, by the end of the night, I was even more disturbed by the things I was seeing on my newsfeed, and just deeply troubled. And um, because there's so many people speaking uh, who who are teachers of the word, who who claim to be prophets or or whatever it may be, um, I felt the need to speak to to the congregation God has entrusted to me a word. And if and if it is something you need, receive it. And if it's not for you, uh, it's, it's maybe not you that's the problem. I, I just want to say this. Christians have no business minimizing, blame shifting, denying, or certainly celebrating when godless people incite godless actions that lead to violence, to destruction, and to death. That is not a political statement because we see it on both sides of the aisle. But it concerns me that, that the church is getting a little too, or maybe in some cases a lot too, caught up in temporary hope. Every song we sang tonight said the same thing. Our God reigns. Not because of who's in the White House. Not because of laws that are passed. Not because of the level of freedoms we enjoy. Our God reigns because there is an empty tomb where death couldn't hold him. And, and I, I long to see, and I pray to see the day when the world has every confidence that we believe that our God reigns because we are unshakable in our faith in him. And so with that, I, I just want to pray. I, I, I want to kind of close that off. Um, and, and I'm going to do what I believe is, is biblical. It's going to be in the passage we're going to look at tonight. I'm going to pray on behalf of our nation, on behalf of the church in America and our local church, and just offer a prayer to the Lord. Would you join me? Father, we um, just confess, God, that uh, though we are redeemed and though we enjoy incredible fellowship with you, God, and the Spirit of God that lives in us, um, and you reveal truth to us, and we have your word, and, um, and God, yet despite all that, Lord, we wrestle uh, with sin in our own lives, God. We wrestle with cloudy thinking. We, we struggle with living broken in a broken world and how to uh, flesh that out. And God, we are not doing it perfectly. And in some cases, we're not doing it well. 
Um, God, I say that for myself, and I know many in this room would say the same. And God, uh, before we would ever look to the other side of the aisle, before we would ever pick up a stone to throw, God, we just want to acknowledge, God, that we humble ourselves and we repent. And Lord, we pray that you would restore the church in America. We pray that you would restore our nation, God, not politically, not in some moral way only, but God, that a spirit of renewal through faith in Jesus would sweep through our nation. God, would you change us and help us to be agents of change in our world? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are diving into a series today that couldn't be more timely. Uh, If you've got a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to go to Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is going to be a little bit toward the middle of the Bible. I'll show you where it is in mine. So it's kind of toward the the middle there. I'll give you a minute to, to find it. Uh, or on your on your app if that's where you go. But uh, we're going to dive into this. We're actually only going to look at the first 11 verses of the book of Nehemiah today. Uh, but the series that we're in is called Rebuild. Rebuild. We felt like th- this was the appropriate place to focus in the next several weeks as we come out of a really difficult season and maybe in some cases continue to walk through a very difficult season to ask God to rebuild and to restore the things that have been broken. And so as we do that, one of the first things I want to do is really to give some background to the book of Nehemiah. It's a book in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, um, and, and yet it has much to teach us. In fact, it's incredibly relevant, I believe, as you're going to see today, to the things we're living through in the 21st century. The book of Nehemiah, uh, the events unfold in the 5th century, so just a little less than 500 years before Jesus is going to come to the earth. And along with two other books in the Bible, Ezra and Esther, we have kids in our kids' ministry named Ezra and Esther. I just realized that. That's pretty cool. We're such a cool church. Along with Ezra and Esther, Nehemiah kind of records the final events of the Old Testament. Now, now you may be going, well, then why is it so early in, in the Old Testament? And the reason is that the Bible is laid out less about chronologic, uh, chronolo- uh, chronology. It's more laid out in literary fashion. And so the books that are written from the same literary perspective are grouped together. So you've got the first five books, which are the law. Then you've got historical narrative. This is what, uh, what Nehemiah is. You've also got poetry and wisdom and apocalyptic and major prophets, minor prophets. So sometimes if you're reading and you go, man, that seems out of order. Well, it may be out of order chronologically, but it's grouped together by the literary device used in writing. So just for some help there. Nehemiah, together with the book of Ezra, was originally one scroll. It was all written on one scroll. These were not two separate books. Um, And they come, as I said, right at the tail end of the Old Testament Immediately following the events that we'll see in Nehemiah over the next several weeks is what some scholars refer to as 400 years of silence. This does not mean that God was silent for 400 years, rather that there was no written scripture in that 400-year period. Nothing canonical, nothing that was included in our, in our 66-book Bible was written after the events that unfold in Nehemiah. Uh, In fact, the only thing that follows is the prophecy of Malachi just a couple of years later, and then there's this 400 years of so-called silence. I mentioned Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are maybe what you'd consider partners in crime. Uh, They're living as contemporaries. They're doing a lot of work together, Um, and and this is going to lead us to the book of Nehemiah that we're going to dive into today. And what I want to do today, as I said, is cover those first 11 verses in chapter 1, and we're going to see three prerequisites 
for renewal. If you came in today or you're watching online and you're going, man, I would love to experience renewal. I would love to experience restoration, rebuilding. We're going to see three things that are absolutely necessary for that to take place. So Nehemiah chapter one, that the very first prereq for renewal is going to be this, a sobering revelation. I want to read Nehemiah chapter one, beginning at verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the tw- uh, 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Han and I, uh, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Now, let me pause for just a moment. There is one detail that I did not share with you that you need to know. Nehemiah is going to, the events of Nehemiah are going to occur shortly after the time when the Jews have returned from exile in Babylon. The Persian Empire has now overthrown the Babylonian Empire. They're in control now, and they've been a little friendlier to the Jewish people. They've said, you guys can come home. So not all, but many of the Jewish people have now returned to Jerusalem. And they're settling in. And Nehemiah is nearly a thousand miles away in the, in the capital of Persia, a place called Susa. And he's going to inquire about his people back home in Jerusalem. And, and you might even circle these words in your Bible. That this is what his brother and his companions tell Nehemiah. The people are in great trouble. There is shame. The walls are broken down, destroyed. See, I imagine that Nehemiah, a thousand miles away, having not probably ever seen the city of Jerusalem, he's got these grand ideas about what the return from exile has looked like. Man, finally God's people are back in Jerusalem and and he's imagining the the temple built and the walls thriving and and the people worshiping and and coming together as the people of God. And and he's thinking, man, if only I could be there. It's got to be so wonderful in Jerusalem. Reminds me of when I was going to school in northern Indiana, and about this time of the year, I would just start dreaming about being on a beach in Florida and going, man, my friend's back home, like, I bet they're having so much fun. They weren't, but in my mind, they were, you know, everything was better there, better back home. And and to a Jewish person, you just, you know, ramp that up by like a thousand times because Jerusalem was everything. The city of God. The place where God's presence was manifest. And, and so in, in Nehemiah's mind, he's asking, guys, tell me about Jerusalem. Tell me about the people that have returned. He's got to picture this being a wonderful thing. Let me translate what I believe Nehemiah asked essentially. He said, guys, how are things in our nation's capital? Right? How are things in our nation's capital? I, I was sermon prepping on Wednesday at, at the clubhouse in the neighborhood where I, where I live. And I don't know that I've ever done sermon prep where there was a TV on in the room. But because I was at a public space, there was a TV on and it was muted. And so as I'm preparing this message in these very parts of Nehemiah, I'm seeing what's going on at the U.S. Capitol. And I'm going, what an interesting comparison. I did some research and found that the distance from here to D.C. is almost the same as it was what it was between Susa and Jerusalem. And, and, and Nehemiah had to feel this sense of, when he hears this going, man, what, what can I do? 
This is terrible news. What can I do to make a difference here? There was a gap, not only between Nehemiah and Jerusalem, there was a massive gap in what he imagined and what he heard revealed, this sobering revelation. That rather than experiencing triumph, Nehemiah learns that God's people in the place of God are in turmoil. And he's shattered by this revelation. But, but here is the silver lining. The first step to any progress is to be honest about where you are. To be honest about what is. You know this if you have ever attempted to, to lose weight that the first step is onto a scale, right? And, and to honestly look at what is before you can make a difference in what will be. Or, or if you've ever had to uh, bounce back from a financial issue or financial crisis, the first step, you've got to be honest about where you are. Pull up the checking account. Run the numbers. It's ugly. It hurts. But you've got to get there or you're never going to make progress. It's why Alcoholics Anonymous, for decades, the meetings open up the same way. Hi, my name is, and I'm an alcoholic. Because you cannot make progress, you can't experience renewal until you come to the sobering revelation that things are not as they ought to be. Things are not what I want them to be. And Nehemiah is having this sobering revelation about his people and about the city of God. It is not good, Nehemiah. Here's a question I want us to wrestle with. I'm going to give you four over the course of the message. Here's the first one. Where in your own life do you need to honestly confront brokenness? It's, it's easy to shove those things to the periphery because they're not fun to deal with. But while we do that, the problems get worse. They don't get better. So where in your life do you honestly need to confront this? Maybe this is in your marriage or your family and you need to go, things are not good. Things are not as they ought to be. Maybe it's in your own personal walk with God where you go, yeah, I'm, I'm still showing up and I'm still going through the motions, but, but things aren't as they ought to be in my soul. And we must start by this sobering revelation, an honest confrontation. And then that revelation of God has to be met with a response. The second thing I want to give you, the second thing is this, a spiritual response, second step to experiencing renewal. Look at Nehemiah verse four, Nehemiah chapter one, verse four. He says this, as, I, uh, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We're going to leave this verse up for just a moment. I want to I break this into two parts. First, he says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. Now, Nehemiah, you're going to find out in a minute, is living in a palace. He's living in the king's courts in Susa. Things for Nehemiah are pretty good. But when Nehemiah learns of the condition of his brothers back home, it breaks him and he weeps. And we learn this from Nehemiah. That spiritual response prioritizes the well-being of others over ourselves. See, most people live with the attitude, I don't care if your life is a wreck, I'm doing pretty well. Nehemiah flipped that. He had a spiritual response to the brokenness in the world. He said, it doesn't matter if things are good for me. If they're not good for my brothers, if they're not good for God's people, then I'm going to sit here and I'm going to weep over the brokenness that I see. The truth is most human emotion, or at least much human emotion, springs from being personally offended 
and our response leads to further brokenness. This is what James addresses in James 1, verses 19 to 20. He says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. As I've watched things unfold for the last several years in the Church of America, I have come to believe that anger is the dominant emotion in the church. And there is a place for anger. (laughs) Scripture says, be angry and sin not. But James is going to tell us, guys, when anger becomes the dominant emotion, when it it becomes the thing that overrides all other emotion, it's going to lead us to a bad place. And people who serve the Prince of Peace should not be known as people of anger. Right? It's, It's not the right look for us. There's something else that we should be tapping into, and it's what Nehemiah tapped into. It's this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, anger, depression, destruction, these things produce death. The difference here with Nehemiah and what moves a lot of us, if we're being honest, is we're moved by the offense that comes to us and it causes us to look outward with a hardened heart at other people. Nehemiah didn't go there. He didn't get angry. He didn't go storm the gates. What he did was he sat in his grief and went, things are broken. This is not good. And he looked inward at himself first. He looked inward at what was broken in his own life first. And then look what he did. Part two, he says, I continued fasting and praying to the God of heaven. I continued fasting and praying to the God of heaven. Nehemiah understood that God-sized problems can only be resolved by God. A minute ago, we sang the song, God, I look to you, right? Because no one is getting us out of this mess, be it our our nation, our our, our sin, the the situation our marriage is in. No, No one's getting us out of this mess except God alone. So we look to God. Nehemiah turned his eyes to God in prayer. He was moved. He wept. And he continued to do it day after day after day to look to God, to the one who could resolve it. You know, if we were to look at the course of history, we would see that every great move of God is birthed in tears and through prayer. It's birthed through tears and in prayer. When, When God moves the heart of a person to address an injustice or some other situation that, that God is birthing, he does it through tears and in prayer, never through bloodshed. Revolutions are, are the way of the world, but, but the, the move of God comes through tears and in prayer. It's when somebody looks at a situation with spiritual eyes and says, this is not right. It's Jesus looking over the city of Jerusalem and weeping because they wouldn't come to him. It's William Wilberforce looking at slavery in the European Empire and the British Empire and saying, this is not right. We have to do something about this. It's Martin Luther King Jr. looking at the issues in the 50s and 60s, the civil rights and human rights violations in our nation and saying, this isn't right. It's Mother Teresa learning that lepers were dying in the streets of Calcutta because no one was willing to risk their lives to touch them and saying, this isn't right. And they were moved to a place of action, but first they sat in the grief and they looked to God. 
I believe some of you, God may be stirring to action, but I want to encourage you first to let yourself sit in the grief that you feel and to take it to God for days or weeks or maybe even months. Let him refine what he is showing you and how he is leading you. And I have a vision for a day when someone might say, because God's birthed this vision in their heart, it isn't right that there's over 5,000 children in Central Florida that don't have a forever family, and there's more churches than that. That's not right. Or it isn't right that for the lowest levels of crime, black youth are incarcerated at more than three times the rate of white youth. That isn't right. And some of you are going to be stirred to, to step into that injustice and take action. It isn't right that every year in America, still today, nearly a million unborn children are aborted. And some of you are going to be stirred to to action, to step into that, to make a difference. Here's another question I want to pose to you. As we move out from the center of the brokenness in our own lives to the brokenness of the world, question number two, where in our world is God calling you to become a champion for change? See, one, one of the things that I've noticed is whenever somebody tries to do something good these days, somebody else goes, well, you think that's important? You should be doing this. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? If they're doing something good, let them do it. Maybe the reason you think that's so irrelevant or trivial or lesser is because the passion God's put in your heart is different and you need to chase that, but they need to chase this. And if we would all take the passion God has put in us and bathe it in prayer and tears and take it to the Father and then step into action, we would see a move of God. So what is it for you? The biggest thing is that we're engaged, that we're not just sitting on the sidelines or apathetically or cynically living our lives, but that we're tuned in. God, what is broken in my world? I can't fix everything, but I can fix something. What is it for me that you would call me into action with? Tears can become dreams. You start to imagine, man, what if it was different? What if it didn't look like this, but it actually started to look like that and, and dreams become prayers. God, would you make this a reality? This, this dream that you've put in my heart. This is where Nehemiah was. He's at the point of prayer. But the next thing we're going to see in the coming weeks is that prayer gives birth to vision. Man, I can, I can see how this work is going to happen and who's going to be involved and, and, and it starts to come together and the vision gives birth to the work and the work produces change. Nehemiah was involved in this, but the first step is a spiritual response that doesn't run ahead of God, but stays and waits and experiences the heart of God before seeing the hand of God move. Let me read Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. This, is a, this entire uh, passage that I'm about to read to you is Nehemiah's prayer. It's part of this spiritual response that Nehemiah had. Let me read it for you. Verse 5, and I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I pray now before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me 
And if you keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them, and I will bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man." I want to point out a couple things from Nehemiah's prayer. And again, as part of this spiritual response that Nehemiah has, notice that Nehemiah's prayer is based on clear biblical truth. What what Nehemiah is saying is reflecting the theology of Deuteronomy chapter 4 and many other parts of the Old Testament where God says basically these same words. Look, if you do right, if you pursue me, if you seek after me, if you keep yourself unstained from the corruption in the world, if you, if, you, if you do justice, if you serve the poor, then you're going to live in the land and it's going to go well for you. But if you veer off into selfishness and greed and stuffing your own face and depriving the poor, and if you do these things, it's not going to go well for you. And, and, and Nehemiah understands scripture enough to bathe his prayer in it. Two times he uses the same phrase. He says, that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah is thinking about specific scriptures that point to a clear biblical truth. And I say clear biblical truth because, again, there's some people in our world today who are twisting and distorting scripture to suit their own purposes. And I would tell you this. Do not listen to anyone who uses scripture to emphasize God's plans as if they revolve around a political leader or a nation or a form of government, rather than on the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. Those have veered off. They've gone the wrong direction. Nehemiah's going, man, it's pretty clear to me. I'm not not taking some obscure passages and trying to build a timeline. You said, God, to walk in this way, and we haven't done it. It's pretty clear, right, what Jesus taught us to do? Love our neighbor, turn the other cheek, Do for others what we would have them do for us. Paul said the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience. It's pretty clear what God has called us to walk in. Nehemiah is going to say, listen, we've not walked in that way. But those who rightly understand and apply the word of God can begin to experience God's move in the world. One of the commentaries I was reading this week from a commentary called Christ-Centered Exposition. I think we're going to have it on the TV. I want you to see what they say about this idea of Nehemiah and his understanding of Scripture. They ask, so why is Nehemiah so emotionally affected in verse 4? It's because he knows the Bible. Do you want to love God, God's kingdom, and the advance of the good news of God's triumph in Christ? Do you want the strength of character to look at a desperate situation full in the face and have the wherewithal to do something about it? Then fill your mind with the Bible. Right? That's the starting point. A clear understanding to read it, to study it. It's why Jesus could say to the enemy when he twisted Scripture, said, look, the Scripture says if you throw yourself from this temple that he will command his angels concerning you and they will catch you and they will raise you up. And Jesus said, Scripture says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So beware of those who are going to manipulate, manipulate and try to motivate to unrighteous action using God's word. Nehemiah wasn't having any of that. And here's the other thing I see in the prayer. Nehemiah took responsibility for the judgment that God's people were experiencing. 
Go back, if we can, to to verses 6 and 7, because I think this one principle and this one reality could, could revolutionize our world. He says, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. He's not launching grenades at those evil people who aren't me, who are causing God's judgment. Nehemiah is saying, no, 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 it's here. It's, it's in this room. It's in this heart. It's me. It's my father's family. It's my people. We have sinned. God's judgment deserves to rest on us. The only difference is that we plead the mercy of Jesus. That's the only thing that makes us different and unique. And so Nehemiah is taking responsibility for the things that are going wrong. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. This is often quoted. I don't know that it's often quoted rightly, but, but here, is the, here is the principle I want to draw out. Second uh, Chronicles 7, 13, 14. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send pestilence among my people, uh, if my people, we skipped one, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and will pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Can I tell you what I believe this principle? That this, these words were spoken to a different people a long time ago, right? It's a different context, but here's the principle. God says, don't look for deliverance from other people changing their ways. Things change when God's people change. Things change when the people of God live in humility and repentance and respond spiritually and pray fervently and seek the Lord. As long as we're throwing missiles across the aisle at each other, we're never going to see any change. But God's people can make a difference by taking responsibility as Nehemiah did. And so maybe it's time we did that. Maybe it's time to get off social media and to get on our knees. Maybe it's time to stop railing against the sins of others and begin repenting of our own sins. Maybe it's time that we changed our goal from winning political battles to winning the world to Christ. Maybe it's time to end our allegiance to temporary systems and to reaffirm our allegiance to the one who was and who is and who is to come. Maybe it's time for this kind of renewal in the church of Jesus. Here's another question to wrestle with. What is one thing in your own life that you can change in order to better experience and better example the presence of Jesus? I was talking with one of my children the other day, and and this particular child was having trouble getting along with their siblings. And with me. (laughs) And with Nikki. And I said to this child, sweetheart, or buddy, do you see... (laughs) A common denominator. She said, what's a common denominator? I said, well, do you notice that the one person who's having problems with all of these people is the same person? It's you. And this child was like, oh, man. I said, yeah. I said, maybe rather than hoping that the siblings or the situations change, why don't you try today to change your own attitude and your own actions? Right? And, I, and I'm teaching that to, to my children, but I got to learn that. Because it's easy and it's comfortable to think, man, if everything else was just what it should be, I would be better. The gospel doesn't allow us to do that. The gospel says, no, 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 I want to deal with your sin. I want to have you walk in freedom. I want you to be salt and light in the earth. I want you to be a change maker 
It's you. It starts with you. Third and final thing we're going to see here in Nehemiah. Number three, it's prerequisite to experiencing renewal. So a sobering revelation, a spiritual response, and then finally a sovereign reality. I'm not going to spend very long on this last one. Uh, This is the end of the passage. You'll notice I left a sentence out. Let me go to it. The passage ends at the end of verse 11 with these words. Nehemiah says, now I was cupbearer to the king. I love this just from a a reading perspective that that this writer, Nehemiah, is going to wait to the end of the passage to reveal this really kind of important detail, right? Because up to this point, you're thinking, okay, he's almost a thousand miles away from the problem. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's not a commander. He's not a king. So where in the world is Nehemiah going to play a part in this story? Like, what does he have anything to do with what's going on other than that he is a Jewish person? And he says, oh, one more thing I need to add. I didn't tell you this. I was the cupbearer to the king. Who's the king? Uh, Artaxerxes, the most powerful person in all of the world, right? He had relational and spatial proximity to power. He says, that's what I was. That that was my position that God called me to. I was the cupbearer to the king. He just happens to be exactly where he needs to be. Like Joseph happened through being enslaved and imprisoned to find himself second in command in Egypt. Like Moses happened to be found on the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter. Like Ruth happened to find herself gleaning in the fields of Boaz. Like David happened to overhear the threats of Goliath as he was taking cheese to his brothers on the front lines. Like Esther happened to catch the eye of the king when the life of her people was at stake. And scripture tells us about Esther and we know it to be true of all of those and in our lives. Those happenstance events were divinely orchestrated. They were sovereign realities for such a time as this. Friends, God has put you in the places you are to effect change. You go, well, I just clean houses. Yeah, but why do you clean that person's house? Well, I'm just a middle manager. Well, why, why did God put you over those people and in those rooms? Well, I just have kind of a small church and we're just, well, why did God give you that? It's a sovereign, providential reality to bring God's plans to pass in your life. Nehemiah recognized that he could leverage his position and his proximity to make a positive difference in the purposes of God and for the kingdom of God. The final question that we're going to look at here it is, where has God given you influence to promote peace and justice or to advance the gospel of Jesus? That could be in your workplace, that could be in your neighborhood. For some of you, that's your family, where you're one of the only Christians, or you're a grandparent, and you've got a legacy coming up behind you and you can pray and you can model and you can look for opportunities to influence. But where do you have the opportunity to do that? I'm going to call the team to the stage and they're going to lead us in worship in just a moment. There's a, a, a question, not like one of these questions, more philosophical. It's something that people have wrestled with and batted around, philosophers, romantics for a lot of years. They say this, they ask this question, is it better to have loved and lost, or what? To never have loved at all, right? Chris, what in the world does that have to do with this? Well, here here it is. As we talk about rebuilding, as we talk about renewal, the truth is, sometimes it's better to have a blank slate than a broken one. 
But you may be coming in today and your faith was once strong and now it is weak. Or your marriage was once healthy and now it is on the brink. Or your finances were once doing okay and now they're in shambles. Whatever that is, sometimes it's easier just to go, this is a blank slate, but some of you are dealing with brokenness. And like Nehemiah, there's, there's a pile of rubble around your feet. And you're going, I don't know what to do with this. But God knows what to do. The walls of Jerusalem would be rebuilt. The bridges of reconciliation in our nation can be rebuilt. What lies in ruins in your life can be redeemed. And I would just invite you to this. This one's just going to be for reflection. Final question. Do you believe that the broken things in your life and in our world can be made new? Now, what God has done before, he will do again. Would you pray with me? Father, it's been a, it's been a tough week. It's been a tough year. Um, but God, you said that in this world, we're going to have trouble. God, we don't want to be surprised or alarmed by that. God, we just want to bring it and, and set it at your feet. Because you said, take heart. Take heart because I have overcome the world. And God, we pray that in the middle of whatever mess we're in, whatever shambles, whatever ruins, as we honestly look at our life and our world and go, yeah, these, these aren't as things ought to be. I, I, I wouldn't have thought we'd ever get here or that I'd ever be here in this place in my faith or in my marriage or in my family or whatever it is. But God, as we honestly confront that and we bring that to you, would you do again in our lives what you've done before? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service times, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.